kids. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter. You can follow along if you'd like, or just listen to the read aloud. I will read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastised and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Jesus, we need your help if we're to understand these things. Uh, you have, you picked a messenger named Paul who writes difficult things. <laughs> and, and we need your spirit's aid if we're to understand what you would give us today to nourish our souls. We recognize, we, we believe the truth here that you have given us all things, that we, even if it seems we have nothing at times, we have all things. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And you've given us yourself, we can't ask for more. Um, so in giving us yourself today, in ministering your presence to us, we pray that, that along with that, that that would be seen in our knowledge and our, our understanding of this passage. So open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, so that we can receive spiritual things from a good Father that loves us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I mentioned in our uh, communion talk this morning, just a few moments ago, about how coming to Christ, coming to God, requires really an emptiness on our part. Um, we don't go to God and say, I have all I need. I'm all filled up. I really don't have any room for you, but you can come and do my stuff if you want. That's not how you interact with, you know, the creator of the universe, the living God. You, you come to God with a, with a, a kind of emptiness, with your needs. Uh, it's the hungry who he fills up. It's the poor that he makes rich. And we know that Christ himself modeled this for us. He was rich. He doesn't get richer than heaven. Okay, no one richer than God. And he became poor for our sake. He, Jesus emptied himself. He became of no reputation. He suffered a humiliating death. But he will receive all glory, honor, and praise, and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. So he, he models this paradox. Now, Paul wants to be like Jesus, and I think we do too. In this passage, which ends with that strange couplet there, this impossible paradox as having nothing and yet possessing all things, we're following the same for formula. We're following Paul, who is following Jesus. 
who recognize that the sacrificial life, a life of pouring oneself out, is the richest you get. It's the fullest you get. And this is following Christ. We follow him to the cross, to the tomb, to the resurrection. It doesn't make sense unless you've done it. Um, and, and in verse 1, Paul says, I'm doing this with Jesus. We're doing this with Jesus. We didn't invent sacrifice. We didn't invent this formula. We are just following Christ, the living, crucified God. In verse 1, he says, uh, we're workers together with him, capital H, uh, with God, with Jesus. Jesus is our co-worker. <laughs> he is our partner. When he says in the Gospels, take my yoke upon you, he's talking about a yoke of oxen. That's two oxen plowing side by side. Jesus is bearing your burden with you. Jesus is working with you. Now, at the end of chapter 5, of 2 Corinthians, verse 20, Paul had said, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what working with Jesus looks like. He says he's pleading through us. We're imploring you on his behalf. We're doing the work of God together with God. It looks like being an, an ambassador. We can delight in knowing that God is working with us. He has not left us alone. He doesn't give us jobs that he wouldn't do himself. We are working with him. And it, this looks like being a, a, the ambassador who is sharing this word, the word of reconciliation, that God is willing to make peace with those who are far from him. That God is making peace with the world and he is reconciling it to himself in Christ. That's doing the work of an ambassador, that's speaking that word. The verse I, I just read from chapter 5, verse 20, he said God was pleading through Paul. He was imploring the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. God is pleading with the church th through Paul, and, and he is pleading with them, get right with God. The main message, be reconciled to God. Become friends with the one who loves you more than anyone, who is pursuing your heart, who has done everything necessary to make you his own. Be reconciled to that God. And now there's the next part here in verse 1. We plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Saying this God who pursues you, who reconciles the world to himself, who forgives sins, doesn't count their transgressions against them. You've been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation to experience it, to speak it. Now that's a lot of blessing. Don't waste it. Don't receive that grace in vain. To receive something in vain, it would be to, to have it, but not use it. If I see you doing a project and you're using a butter knife instead of a screwdriver, I might give you a screwdriver and you might receive it. But if you keep using the butter knife, you have received that screwdriver in vain. <laughs> to receive the grace of God in vain is to recognize the goodness of God. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Absolutely. I know uh, the forgiveness of sins. Sign me up. Don't like the alternate path, right? I like forgiveness. That's great. Whatever blessings the Lord bestows, you might receive them, but if you just go on with your life without any of that becoming part of how you live, then you may receive grace in vain. To receive grace in vain is to be shown grace, but then hinder the work of grace. To receive grace properly, then, is to allow the goodness of God to propel us into right thinking and right living. And I'm not just making this up, by the way. This is the way Paul talks about all of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a few chapters back, he used the same words. He shows what, uh, what they mean. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The work that Paul did with God proved that the grace of God was not received in vain. He says, I lived it. You can tell the grace wasn't in vain because look what I've done. I've lived this life, living the life of Christ with him. This makes sense. If the grace of God is described as a ministry of reconciliation, that is the making of friends out of enemies, and the plea of God to people in the church out of it is be reconciled to me, be with me, then it would be vain to receive that friendship or the news of that friendship and then not be friends. Friends do stuff together. Uh, receiving the grace of God in vain is receiving the forgiveness, but not his friendship. It's receiving the message about Christ, but not his friendship, not living the life of Christ. Or you could look at it a different way. An ambassador bringing a message of reconciliation is working for a king, right? Or a government. The king declares peace, but he also declares his authority. He's not against you, any longer, but that's only because he considers you now one of his citizens and one of his children. To receive that grace in vain would be to say, okay, I'll accept the peace, but I'm not going to serve the king. I'll accept the peace, but I'm not going to pretend like you're my father that has any authority over me. To be reconciled to this king is to recognize his authority over you and live according to his rule. Now, again, a word of encouragement on that. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come on in. The water's fine. So Paul pleads with the church, as God pleads with the church, be reconciled to God and don't waste it. He's blessed you, don't waste it. And he, he says, uh, he quotes this verse from the Old Testament, it says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The verse he quotes is from Isaiah 49, verse 8, and it's used here to give this sense of urgency, like, come on, get on it, let's get to work. It's time to get right with God. He's willing to hear you. He's willing to help you. Today's the day of salvation. It's time to start acting saved. Now, we've run into this kind of passage before in Paul's writing where he's talking to the church, but he's kind of sounding like Billy Graham giving an altar call, right? This sounds like he's pleading with the lost, come, become Christians. And we know that that's not really what this letter is. Uh, he's, he's writing to the church, saying, today is the day of salvation. Act like it. And you might ask, what do they need saving from? Well, I think we saw that in the last chapter, and I'll remind you, because I think you've forgotten by now. The reason Christ died, one of the reasons that Christ died, according to chapter 5, verse 15, is that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What do we need saving from? Our selfishness. And you're like, well, Jesus already forgave my sins because there's like the cross and the, the Easter thing and everything. So like, I'm good. It's like, you need, you need salvation from your tendency to make the entire created universe about you. We need saving from that because my heart still tends that way. I still lean towards just total selfishness. Living for yourself as a Christian is a way of receiving grace in vain because he has empowered you with the spirit of the living God to serve people, to love God, love people, live like it. So now this is a call sent out to believers. Be reconciled to God. Get Put the yoke on you. It's, it's light. It's easy. It's not too much for you. He does all the heavy lifting, but he's got jobs for you to do. He has work for you to do. 
The call is to the church. Today is the day of salvation. And we realize that Christians are still being called to be saved. And we say, from what? Answer, the selfishness. From a life that is not lived in close connection with the God who has saved you. Now, we need to be careful to follow Paul's thinking here because it's not always easy. He's like, he didn't edit. He just wrote. Okay, I don't think he ever went back to tie the arguments together. He's just like, I'm a genius. And he just wrote from chapter one all the way through. And it's, it's fantastic. And the Holy Spirit inspired it. And we believe it. But it's hard. Um, verses three through 10, that long list of all those things that we read, it can seem kind of disconnected and distant from the things that he wrote in verses one and two. Verses one and two, he's pleading with them. And it's in an altar call fashion. He says, get right with God. And in verses three through 10, he says, and my life has been really terrible. You're like, why are we talking about that right now? But verse three through 10, he's talking about his ministry and it's, he's giving the proof of his ministry's authenticity. And he says, the authentic, he says, you know that I am walking with I have that yoke on me. I am working with Jesus. And this is what it looks like. Yeah, it looks like suffering a whole bunch, um, but there's more. And the things that you might see in my life saying, oh, you're disqualified. I don't think, you must not know God very well because your life is so difficult. He's like, oh, oh, you think that's difficult. It gets worse and I know him more. I know Christ through suffering. I know Christ in my weakness. I'm always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Can you beat that? And so he writes this list after he says, be reconciled to God. He says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. He's inviting Christians into the fullness of the life of Christ. He's calling believers into a deeper experience of, of God, one where we not only receive from Christ, but actually get to go to work with him every day. We get to be about our father's business, where he's the other ox under the yoke, where his life is being formed in us. And this list of what at first glance appears to be mostly bad things that Paul lists in verses 3 through 10, this describes that deeper life. It's painful and worth it. It's dangerous and fulfilling. <laughs> It doesn't look like anyone's ideal, but there are benefits beyond what anyone could imagine. I said it was a list of mostly bad things, at least uncomfortable things. That's not the point Paul's trying to make, or it's not the only one. It's a description of what ministry with Jesus looks like, including the graces of Jesus that render the sufferings as hardly worth mentioning. That's what Paul said about his sufferings, right? He's like, I don't consider them worthy to be compared with the glory that exists in living this kind of life. Look at the end of verse 10 again. He says, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. That's how he describes his ministry, his walk with Jesus. The deeper life available to those who do not receive the grace of God in vain is a life where all things are yours. That's where we're headed. To get there, we got to go through a long list. So let's, let's start. Um, Verses 3 through 10, they're, they're kind of characteristic of, of other passages in 2 Corinthians. This passage is one of the great big long lists of suffering, which, are, which uh, Paul keeps mentioning. Uh, when we read through this, you may have been reminded of chapter 4, verse 8, when Paul wrote that he and the other apostles were pressed down but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, and there's that big long list. Um, there's in... Uh, both of those passages foreshadow that list of light and momentary afflictions that he talks about in chapter 11. 
Where he's like, oh, yeah, I was left for dead at least once. I was shipwrecked this many times. I, I was beaten with rods this many times. And he just lists all the persecutions that he went under. And all of that is warming up to the key verse in chapter 12 where Paul says, my grace, or sorry, Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul explains, this is why I will boast in my weaknesses. I'll tell you where I'm a failure. I'll tell you where I'm hurting. I'll tell you where I'm sad because those are areas in which the living God moves. This is a major theme in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's a major theme in Christianity that we tend to shy away from and ought to know better. The sufferings of God's servant, rather than disqualifying him, actually serve to verify the power of God. For the Christian who suffers in doing good, there's this word, yet, that Paul keeps using, or but, that offers an immense amount of hope. Every worldly trouble for the Christian is answered by an eternal joy. So we'll take this passage slow, not too slow, so we can revel in the beautiful joys that are after the word yet. We'll look at this list of mostly terrible things and relish the victory that answers each one. Verse 3, he says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. You see, it's sort of a, the reputation of Paul's ministry that's on the line. Uh, you also see in verse 4, there's that word uh, commend again, like the letters of commendation mentioned earlier in the book. A letter of commendation would be like a reference letter you get when someone who likes you uh, it wants you to get the job that you want to get. And, and you're like, can you write a reference for me? And they're like, yeah, I'll say good things. You'll get the job. It'll be fine. That's a ref, uh, letter of commendation. And when you ask people to be a reference for a job application or college or something else, you're usually going to pick people who are going to say nice things about you and make you look really good. The commendation that Paul offers in his defense doesn't make him look good. It makes him look weak. It makes his life look terrible, but it shows God to be faithful. And it shows God to be for his suffering servants. As Paul writes in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's how he can end up with, and by the way, I have all things. All things are mine. So the first three, first four things on the list that qualify him as a minister of the gospel, that prove that he has taken on the yoke of Jesus and is working with him, he says these things that will commend our, ourselves to you are patience, tribulations, needs, distresses. Put that on your resume. I'm very patient because my life is terrible, I don't have anything, and I'm always panicking. Hire me. You know? And... Now, patience with these other three, you, you see the connection between tribulations, needs, and distresses. They could all describe the same situation. We think of patience as something that's needed in a long line at the grocery store, but it, it, it's more than that here. It's endurance. It's enduring pain. Uh, it's a different word from the word that uh, is usually translated patience, or sometimes long-suffering. That shows up in verse 6. But the ideas are similar, right? Suffering for a long time. Enduring. These four things that Paul says commend a minister of God, our sufferings that are endured. Long-suffering is enduring through painful situations. Tribulations are, it's a fancy word for hard times. Needs, that's poverty, or at least lacking things that are necessary for you to carry out your plans, or maybe any plan comfortably. Distresses, that's the emotional state one finds themselves in when they are facing tribulation and needs that require long-suffering. I'll remind you of how Paul describes his situation in chapter 1, verse 8, a few chapters back. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, God took us to the end of our capabilities and then beyond that. So we knew I couldn't have done that. That was all the Lord. And this is characteristic, again, of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. It's that kind of situation that proves Paul, Paul has patience. But wait, there's more. Verse 5 begins with stripes, imprisonments, tumults. Tumults are riots. And Paul had a way of finding himself in large groups of angry people frequently. Read the book of Acts. It's all throughout there. He got hurt when lots of angry people tried to kill him all at the same time. Now, you can be in a hard place, and you can wonder how you're going to get what you need, tribulations, needs, and you can be in an emotional state of distress, but I think things ramp up a little bit when people start hitting you until you bleed. And so Paul's escalating here. He's saying, and it gets worse. That's what stripes are. They're scars. And in Paul's case, after they whip him, they throw him in jail. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are arrested in Philippi. They're in a, in a jail. It says the multitude, well, before they're in jail, it says the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Christianity is exciting. And then at midnight, Paul and Silas are singing because while he's sorrowful, he's yet always rejoicing. And God sends an earthquake, the chains break, the jailer is going to kill himself but gets saved instead. That's how you do church planting. Paul left Philippi with Christians in it, but also he left with scars on himself. And he says in Galatians 6, 7, that he bears in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. This is the kind of thing he's talking about now. He says, that, that show, that's my resume right there. You want to you see that I'm serious about this Jesus thing? I will show you I'm serious about this Jesus thing. Paul is describing this kind of life to the Corinthians. He's not just showing off. Remember, all of this is to be seen through the lens of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's not the first person to come as a messenger of God and be abused for it. He's following an example. Paul is calling Christians to take up their sufferings with the sufferings of Christ. He is echoing Jesus himself in the call to take up your cross and follow. And that might look, not look like being put in prison. It might not look like being beaten for your faith, but it very well may take the form of labors, sleeplessness, fastings, which is next on the list. We're entering a different category of suffering here. Stripes, imprisonments, riots. Those are things that happen to you from other people. Uh, labor, sleeplessness, and fasting are, are self-imposed. One might say that, well, the other kind of suffering may or may not come. These things should be self-imposed. We're told to fast. Fasting is something we should do. Sleeplessness here isn't just like, you know, when my mattress was too lump lumpy because I've been persecuted. Uh, I didn't sleep well. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He, he, he's saying that he went without sleep intentionally for the sake of prayer and seeking the Lord in these moments of distress. Fasting is going without food for the sake of spiritual pursuits. There's a similar, there's a similar thing going without sleep for the sake of seeking the Lord. And these are important practices for anyone who wants to pursue a life of the Spirit and recognizes that this thing called the flesh seems to get in the way. Denying yourself, which is a prerequisite for taking up the cross, I might remind you, Denying yourself involves denying yourself of the things you crave. 
I'm not going to go into the details of what these practices look like. I've done that at other times. I'm not going to give you the you know, 10 tips for effective fasting or something. But I will tell you this and hope that it sticks. Work on your spiritual life. You shouldn't be surprised to hear that from a pastor behind a pulpit, right? Like that. No, I'm not surprising anyone. Labor on the development of the inner man. Develop a practice of fasting. Develop practices of regular self-denial as a means of pursuing the deeper spiritual life. It's a way of increasing your appetites for holy things. And remember, it's the hungry that he fills with good things. Keep going on the list. Let's take a look at verse 6. He's listing the things that qualify him as a minister of the gospel. He says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. All right, we're in another section again. These are things that are different from being beaten by mobs, I think you'll agree. And they're different than the physical disciplines of self-denial, fasting, and things like that. The things listed in verse 16, sorry, verse 6, with the notable exception of the Holy Spirit, are virtues. These are matters of character that are developed through long practice and habit. And remember, these are characteristics of Paul and his ministry, things that show him to be qualified for the ministry and, and, and serve as an example of what the deeper Christian life looks like. These are examples for us to follow. They're things that we ought to pursue and seek to develop in our own lives as we seek to be co-laborers with Christ. As imitators of Christ, as those who want a nearness with him, we pursue, pursue purity. This is often connected with the idea of sexual purity. It includes that, but isn't limited to it by any means. When Paul writes to Timothy, telling him to be an example to the believers he was shepherding, he includes this, be an example to the believers in purity. And now Paul places it in the list of virtues that commend a servant of God. Be pure. Make your purity a priority. In your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, try and identify the things that may be corrupting elements that are making you more like a worldly person that doesn't know like Jesus and a whole lot less like Jesus himself. Identify those things, put them to death. In your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, be holy as God is holy. Pursue knowledge. Paul could offer this commendation for his ministry. He was not ignorant. So be like Paul in that. Learn about God. Make it your aim as, as a Christian to learn about the heart of God. What does he love? What does he care about? What is he like? Study to show yourself approved unto God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Next is long-suffering, so we get patience twice in two different words. This is a fruit of the Spirit that Paul exemplified. God seems to be much more concerned with the long-term plan than we mere mortals, wouldn't you agree? He calls people to things that last longer than we think they should. He calls us to hope for things that are further off than the things we normally hope for. Paul's patience is a seal of his approval. The Corinthians should be able to look at Paul's long suffering and see God's favor on his ministry. Kindness is another fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is working in your life, he will be working in this way. He will be making you kind, gentle, tender-hearted, and, and for some people, maybe all of that sounds far too weak and too many pastel colors are being used here, but it's, really, it's the reality of the work of the Spirit of God. He isn't a bully. Love is not rude. It does not seek its own. It's really rather impressive that Paul could claim this after all the wrongs done against him and after all the sufferings he had endured and after all the dealings with the Corinthians that have been such a headache 
Paul could say, look at my ministry. Haven't I shown you the kindness of Jesus? Let it be said of us that we, in our pursuit of Christ, in our imitation of Christ, that we put a priority on simple kindness. Now, the only way this is ever going to happen the way it should is if we are also growing in the Holy Spirit, who himself is the next point on the list. It is the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, that shapes in our hearts the life of Christ and starts to to form in you really the family identity. You know, you're born again. You look like your parents when you're born the first time. You're born again. You start looking like your new parents. It's the Holy Spirit of God that starts changing your DNA there. And so you look like Jesus, and Jesus is kind. Paul mentioning the Holy Spirit here would be kind of an appeal to this specific church in Corinth. Remember, the Corinthians were very charismatic. Uh, They had a more robust theology of the Holy Spirit than many other churches. They got kind of weird with it, in fact, like churches still do sometimes today, and we love them, and they're great. Uh, But they they deeply cared about the work of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And, And so this would have been something about Paul's ministry that they should have seen and recognized and appreciated. Paul was filled with the Spirit of God. His ministry was led by the Spirit. His life was characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. By showing the church that it is the Holy Spirit who gives Paul's ministry its credibility, he's encouraging them further in, in, his, in what he talked about in chapter 5. He said, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. By saying that it's the Holy Spirit that gives validity and credibility to his ministry, he's saying we're spiritually minded. We're, not, we're concerned about the heart of the matter, not just the appearances. Maybe you guys should be the same way. The last qualification offered in verse 6 is sincere love. We know the high priority Paul places on this virtue. He wrote the most important, well-known passage on love in Scripture, possibly in all of literature. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 shows us that Paul believed that even if his ministry had all the observable trappings of success. He spoke in tongues and had faith to move mountains and he understood all mysteries and all knowledge without love. That highly qualified, very impressive servant of God is nothing. But with sincere love, evidence is given that this ministry is from heaven. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Let's continue. Verse 7. By the word of truth, by the power of God, By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, the word of truth, that's the gospel that Paul preached. And he said, that's what qualifies my ministry. And that's what it looks like working with him and receiving the grace of God in vain. It means rightly dividing the word of truth, that God has come to save, that Jesus forgives our sins, that he can do all that he says he can and will. (laughs) The word is what qualifies and it is what qualifies the messenger himself. Paul could point to the message that was preached, and say, this is what we're made of. Death, burial, resurrection. And he could show that God had backed him up. The power of God and the armor of righteousness. Paul could share testimonies of God's miraculous power and his faithful protection in Paul's life. And he could say, look, look, we're, we're really doing this, and God is actually protecting us as we seek to do his will. Anyone who has walked with the Lord for any length of time will have testimonies of saying, I didn't know how it was going to work out, but then God. And it could be as simple as that, where he's testifying of God's faithfulness of how he has protected his servants when they sought his will. Now in verses 8 and 9 and 10, Paul shifts gears again. He he lists things uh, in twos, side by side. It's It's a list of couplets. He says, by honor and dishonor, 
by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So on one side of the comma, or on one side of the, the yet, you have words that the world and possibly the misguided Corinthians might use to describe Paul. Paul, people would give an, an evil report and would say things to dishonor Paul. They would describe him as a deceiver. And I remember Paul's listing things that would commend him. So how is that commendable? How is it commendable to have people call him a liar, to dishonor him, bring a bad report, say he's unknown even? How, how can this validate his ministry? Well, insults from the right person can be taken as compliments. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> um... If you have the wisdom to accept it, if friendship with the world is enmity with God, then insults from the world can sometimes be worn as badges of honor. Jesus said, if they hated you, they hated me first. So what Paul is doing is saying that the world sees, where the world sees dishonor, the spiritually minded can see what is truly honorable. The accuser of the brethren, that's a nickname for Satan, might say Paul is a deceiver, but the spiritually minded will know that Jesus, whom Paul preaches, is truth itself. The world could see that Paul was dying. But Paul had already said that even if this body is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. He said, I'll, I'll die today. That's fine for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He says they're being chastened yet not killed. Now being chastened is being punished. And while in the book of Hebrews, it does say that God chastens every son whom he receives. But the assumption of Paul's accusers was that every bit of suffering that he endured was a punishment from God. They're like, oh, Paul got shipwrecked again. You know why? He probably said a bad word. He, uh, you know, Paul, God isn't pleased with Paul. That's why his life is so miserable. And Paul says, okay, you can say this is all the punishment of God, but I've done enough. Uh, you realize we're not killed. If God really wanted to chasten me, he would have done away with me. That's for sure. I think we read chastised in the same context as the evil report or dis deceiver or dishonorable. People saying things about Paul's sufferings, you know, as they were evidence of God's displeasure. Paul says, if God was displeased, I think he would have killed us by now. Ananias and Sapphira style. Slain in the spirit, the real way. And what, whatever, whenever we do encounter the bad idea that bad things only happen because God is mad at you, we need to correct that. And Job's friends, they had this idea. They aren't the good guys in that story. Okay, we correct that. Now, verse 10 takes another shift. Rather than being accusations that are false paired with the truth, now Paul lists some realities that just aren't the final word. He says, sorrowful, yeah, yet always rejoicing. The thing is, Paul was sorrowful. Go back to chapter 1, and you see that he's so sorrowfully despaired of life. But because of the eternal perspective that Paul had and never let go of, which he is trying to instill in the Corinthians and encourage the church to develop in, Paul could be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He was saying, we despaired of life, so we trusted in the one who raises the dead. He says, oh, we're going to die. And then he realized, wait, that's not actually the worst thing that can happen to me, is it? And he said, my, my life is miserable, but actually I'm being renewed day by day in the inner man, being formed into the image of Christ. Because of this eternal perspective, eternal perspective, he could be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is the guy who sang hymns while he was chained in a dungeon. This is Paul who wrote from prison, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. This joy of the Lord, which is our strength, proved Paul's ministry to be valid. 
as poor, yet making many rich. Paul was successful uh, in church planting. He was an effective evangelist. He made disciples. This is how he made many rich. He committed to this ministry at great expense to himself, following Christ's example for who for your sakes became poor. Now my favorite part right here at the end. He says, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul says that despite appearances, no matter what it looks like, he actually has all things. And it's not just Paul personally. He's already told the Corinthians and us by extension that this is your inheritance as well. This is what you can lay claim of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And then in the next verse, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how all things are yours. How in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that you've been granted every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. How you can cling, this is how you can cling to the promises of Scripture personally, knowing that the promises of God are all yes and amen in Christ. He has provided for you all things needed for life and godliness, with such riches available to you. Go to work with Jesus. With all things being yours, every blessing, every tragedy, every speed bump. Everything can be received from God from and saying, this, if this is in Christ, as I am in Christ, even this can, can bless me. Even this can draw me nearer to the place I ought to be in the arms of God. With all things being yours, go to work with Jesus. You have joy that transcends sorrows. You have riches that, that transcend poverty. Pursue the upward call of Christ where he takes on the weight of the yoke and saves you from the life of selfishness and saves you to a life of service with him. With the grace of all these things being yours, do not receive the grace in vain. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Grace has been given you. Grace to endure, grace to suffer well and rejoice even better. Grace to pursue purity and kindness and sincere love. The Holy Spirit himself has been given to you in order to produce these things in your life. Do not receive this grace in vain. Let's pray. Jesus, we do love you. We love, uh, we love what you give. We love how generous you are with us. And we know that all these blessings that are ours are ours in Christ, that you, Jesus, are the sum of all spiritual things. And we want to be receptive. And so we come to you hungry. We come to you empty in order to be filled, thanking you for your generosity and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Mm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts.
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.